And so I picked five people and I asked if they would meet me for a cup of coffee or grab lunch. And I don't drink coffee. So it was not about the consumption. It was about, are you willing to meet with me? Because I've, I've made this crazy, stupid decision to quit my very comfortable job. What do you think? Interestingly, four of the five people said, brilliant idea to quit your job. You should have thought of this years ago. Now run fast and figure out what you're meant to do. One person told me I was out of my mind and there was some expletive in there. My husband, that was a different conversation. He finally was like, you know what? This is a surprise. I, I didn't expect this. He was not happy with me. He thought I'd been brainwashed at that conference in Chicago. In a corporate world where all employees have great leaders with no egos that create fun cultures where people can do their best work, the employees and companies thrive while doing great things for the customers, themselves, and each other. Well, we know that rarely happens. I'm Jeff Palaccio. I have been a leader for over 40 years for every t-shirt-sized company, from small 16 employees to extra-large over 1 million. Please join me while I interview outstanding leaders that will share stories of great leadership and not so great. It will help you become a better leader while poking fun at all the crazy shit that happens in corporate America. Hi, I'm Joe Deshawn, and welcome to The Corporate Couch with Jeff Palaccio. Today, Jeff is interviewing Alana Mueller. Alana is an entrepreneurial executive leader whose primary focus is to connect, inspire, and empower community. She is the former president of Kaufman Fast Track, a division of Ewing Marion Kaufman Foundation, a global provider of training to aspiring and established entrepreneurs, providing them the tools, resources, and networks to start and grow successful businesses. Additionally, Alana spent a number of years as an executive with Sprint Corporation, serving in a variety of general management roles, including marketing, talent management, corporate strategy, and wireless data product marketing. Today, Alana is founder and CEO of Coffee Lunch Coffee, where she is a networking speaker, strategist, workshop facilitator, coach, and an international best-selling author of the book, Coffee Lunch Coffee, A Practical Field Guide for Master Networking, the anthology, Growth, Deconstructing Grit Collection, and a blog at coffeelunchcoffee.com. She has been a contributor to Forbes.com, The Huffington Post, and CNBC, and twice was a featured speaker at TEDx Overland Park. Let's listen as Jeff talks to Alana. Alana, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Jeff. I'm delighted to be here. Oh, you're one of my favorite people in the whole world. You're one of my favorite people in the whole world, so uh, this is a treat. Uh, Exciting, exciting. Well, thank you for being a part of the today's episode. Yeah, I always like to start out with a kind of a fun question. So, we, you know, we've been about three years in the, into the pandemic, and now we're all used to Zoom meetings and calls. Uh, what's the craziest attire you've seen anyone wear during a, a Zoom call? <laughs> the craziest attire? Well, I, I, you know what? It's sort of the opposite of attire. I was on, I was on a Zoom call, a, a professional Zoom call. And, you know, one of the things that I have, I still think is funny is that people are still doing Zoom from their bedrooms. They haven't figured out either how to put up a fake screen, which I don't really love. So I get that. Or 
um, just find someplace else in their room, in their house to host their Zoom calls. So I was on a professional Zoom and this guy, we're having a very serious conversation and his wife um, decides that it's time to take a shower. And um, so honestly, it was one of those things where like it was all happening in slow motion and I'm like seeing myself go to like take off all the video or to just like end the call. And he must've realized it cause he grabs his, he grabbed his um, monitor and he moved it aside. So we were all saved from having to see that. So um, I would say it was the sort of the opposite of a tire was the craziest thing that's happened. So it was still PG rated, not an R. <laughs> yeah. Not an R rated. yeah, it was sort of, it was one of those situations where it, it had potential to be like very not PG and, and really not very pleasant. So anyway, that was the funniest thing. And I still cringe at that. <laughs> so now, now you've made me curious. You said uh, the attire for a professional Zoom call. So what's the attire or lack of attire for a un, an unprofessional? Oh, I don't know. I just, <laughs> all I meant by that is it was a meet, like a business meeting. <laughs> guy's wife is in the background flashing us all (laughs) that's funny yeah i've seen clips of people like you know in their underwear and all that but that that's just stuff that was going around the internet oh yeah i mean yeah yeah, i mean i saw that stuff or you know i remember the guy who was broadcasting and he was in his he was in a suit or at least a a sport jacket and and button down he was wearing boxer shorts that was very funny yes yeah he was like cnn or yeah, something. oh yeah. Or some, oh, yeah. Or maybe, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's funny. I did see somebody show up. I suspect that they had just been exercising and so they showed up in a towel. So I don't know. I don't know what I don't know why people think that's okay. It's it's not. Wait, a towel <laughs> and no shirt? Correct. Wow. But like the towel over the shoulders. Oh wow, that's interesting. <laughs> Well, let's talk about, uh, I'd like to start in uh, the formative years uh, for every guest. So growing up, and you grew up in Kansas City, correct? I did, yeah. Um, This is home. Yeah. So growing up here in Kansas City, when you were very young, what did you want to be when you grew up? Oh, I wanted to be an entrepreneur. I mean, like, yeah, my line was, so, you know, while other people were saying, I want to be a teacher, or I want to be a firefighter, or I want to be a whatever... Um, a basketball player. I wanted to own my own business is what I said. I didn't know the word entrepreneur, but I wanted to own my own business. And for a long time, I was, I was also kind of an artist growing up. And so I, for a long time, thought I would have my own fashion line and it was going to be called Alana Renee Designs. And, and I mean, it was, I was all set. And in fact, it was going to grow to be Alana Renee Enterprises what your listeners may not know is that I have no fashion sense. Like I, I'm not, I'm not big on fashion. I really don't care much about it. Um, you're not going to see me sort of pouring through the covers of Vogue or anything. And so I don't know what I was thinking, but that was my way to marry up my interest in art with my like strong desire to own my own company. And so, yeah, Alana Renee Enterprises, that was the thing. Love it. So <laughs> what, how did you, I mean, how did that come about? Oh, gosh. I don't know. I would say I came by it honestly. My parents are entrepreneurs. Um, they still are. They um, they were always doing some business, some, doing something. And when I was very young, my parents owned a racquetball club. And that was before it was like a big, like the huge fitness centers. This was like, this was a 10-court racquetball club. There was a small exercise, like a small weight room 
and what we called the multi-purpose room, which was, you know, exercise classes and all kinds of things. But um, yeah, we owned, uh, we owned as a family, a racquetball club. And so I saw them, I saw them toil over this club. I saw the elation, the pride, you know, some of the heartbreak. And so I, I definitely came by it. Honestly, my, my grandparents were all entrepreneurs and, you know, some of that was out of necessity because they came to this country with nothing. And so, you know, so it, it, it's definitely one of those things that I think is handed down through families. And um, so, so, you know, what, what's interesting about it is that despite the fact that my parents were entrepreneurs, that I always said I wanted to own my own business. One of the things that I remember my parents really encouraged me to do is that once I you know, graduated from high school, went to college that they, they hoped that I would graduate college and get a job with a very large company that would then, that I could there, then stay there for the rest of my career. And that I would basically grow up with that company. And so like very counter to what they did, which is sort of interesting. They, you know, from time to time they had what I would call jobs, but the, for the better parts of both of their careers, they were entrepreneurs. So it, it's not that surprising that that was what was in my mind and on my heart. And, you know, my first job out of college, I was an investment banker in New York City. And honestly, I loved it. I thought it was nothing was better. It was so much fun. I got to travel the entire world. So, so fun. Um, but, you know, after I got that out of my system, I went to business school uh, and and a big focus of the school was entrepreneurship once again. In fact, when I went to business school, I got I I was granted a fellowship for women in entrepreneurship. And I thought that they had made a mistake granting it to me because I'd never owned a business before. And so, you know, it's funny if I if I go back, if I go backwards down the trail of, of the journey everything had to do with entrepreneurship. And yet I didn't really, I did, again, I didn't really know that word. I didn't understand how I would get there. And honestly, when I did finally launch my own business, I didn't have a specific idea. I wasn't exactly like, I, it wasn't something that I longed to do my whole life. It was not Atlanta Renee Enterprises. <laughs> and and so it's just funny that, um, of course, this is where I ended up, but it's not, it wasn't the path that I expected. You said you had a you, you like the arts kind of growing up yeah. uh, got you wanted to be build a fashion empire uh which is phenomenal that you knew that as, as at, a, at a young age um but then you would you go to smith college yeah very uh, prestigious uh, university but you're a math major so how did you kind of <laughs> you're talking about arts and fashion and then you go to math yeah okay so you know it's funny i love that you brought that up because the math degree is like, it's a big part of my identity because, and here's like a in sort of one of those full disclosure moments. When I was in high school and I, I went to Shawnee Mission South High School and, you know, I was a, I was a good student. I mean, school was, academics were really, really important in my family. And um, I, I took I don't know if you know what it was called, like honors calculus. And honestly, I have no idea what the teacher was trying to even convey. He was the worst teacher. Nobody, nobody understood anything. Honestly, we sort of banded together as a group of students. And from the teacher's perspective, he would have called it cheating, but we essentially taught each other what we were trying to do. And so honestly, it was such a bad experience with math. I left high school saying I would never take another math class as long as I lived. And What's funny about it is that one of the reasons I selected Smith was, you know, I was grateful to get in, 
but there was no core curriculum. There were no requirements. You basically built your own curriculum. I also went to college without knowing what major I would have. I mean, I was undeclared. In fact, I was undeclared until second semester sophomore year because I had no idea what I wanted to major in. And again, I thought I'm not going to ever take math again. But as I was going through the course catalog at the end of my freshman year, I was going through the course catalog to select classes for my first semester sophomore year. And this class kind of caught my eye and it was some weird math class. And I was like, I don't know, maybe I'll just try it. And so I take this class and Professor Michael Albertson walks in and he was sort of the quintessential nutty professor. I mean, he walks in, his hair was kind of fuzzy. He was wearing, of course, a, a blazer with patches on the elbows, very disheveled looking, nothing really matched. And he was kind of crazy. And so I go to a couple of weeks of the class and I, you know, it's okay. I'm not really thinking much about it, but the second Friday of the semester, he walks in with a stack of papers and he hands a packet to each one of the students. And he was like, okay, this is the first test of the semester. You've got the whole weekend to do it. See you on Monday. And he left the room. And so we all just sort of looked at each other and it was sort of, what do we do now? So we all left and went back to our houses and I started working on my test. It was a seven question math test. And I worked on it all day and all night. And I don't know, by 10 o'clock that night, I didn't even know one of the answers, not one. And it was clearly open book. It was pre-internet. So, you know, it wasn't like I could, I could, I, you can't, you couldn't have put it into chat GPT then, right? So nobody was going to tell you what the answer was. You had to figure it out on your own using whatever tools or resources you had, including the book. And honestly, I had no idea, not, not even one question. So I went to bed crying and I woke up Saturday morning and I knew the answers. And I know that sounds fake and ridiculous and silly, but I guess it marinated in my brain. And I, I decided it was, they were complicated math problems. So I typed my answers and it was, this was like, you know, word processor days. This was not the kind of, we don't, we didn't have the tools that we have today. And on Monday morning, I handed in my test and I got an A on that test. But Michael asked me to, he said, um, can you stay? I'd like to talk with you after class. And I was like, oh gosh, what did I do wrong? And he said, I want to know why you typed your answers. Nobody has ever typed the answers to a test before ever. And I said, well, it was so complicated and my paper was so messy. I thought that it would help to clarify my thinking. And I don't know what it was about that. He just got the biggest chuckle. He started laughing and that was it. We became very close friends and I mean, and to like share my ultimate nerddom, not only did I declare my math major after that class, but I became the student chair of the department. <laughs> so some of my closest friends were my math professors. And I don't know, I just felt like um, I proved to myself that I could do it despite, may he rest in peace, Harlan Hewer at Shawnee Mission South, who was the worst calculus instructor in, in history. Um, but thanks to Michael Albertson, also may he rest in peace. Um, he just, he helped me to prove to myself that I could do something that I didn't think I could. And it lit me up. And so I, I'm not good at all math and I cannot do math in my head um, despite my best efforts, but I just love it. I love the way that it helps people to think and to work through complicated situations and the logic that's associated with it. So it's a huge part of my identity. And, and I, I'm still proud of that math major. You know, what's interesting, what you said earlier, that your parents wanted you to be with a corporate company for, you know, the rest of your life type thing. 
you know, I, and you're younger than me, um, but you're we're in the same generation. I feel that you know we were the first generation not to have a company for life that, that wasn't expected. Um, the people uh, that you know when we joined and when you joined Chemical, yeah. you had you were people at Chemical that was 20, 25 years, thirty yeah. years at Chemical. Yes. Uh, same thing when I worked at AT and T. So we were the really the first generation to know that we're not going to work for the same company and get the gold watch and have the nice cake uh, at the retirement party. So right. uh, what led you to uh, Chemical Bank? Her name was Vera Weintraub. I don't know whatever happened to Vera, but she was meaningful in my life. So um, at Smith, actually, there was a phenomenal, just a phenomenal career development office. And you know, in those days, and I know you remember this, I mean, jobs were plentiful and good jobs. And so you know, not just myself, but my peers also, we all had multiple opportunities in multiple cities. And, you know, I was a little girl from Kansas. I didn't know anything about New York City. I didn't I've never been there. And as we just discussed, I was a math major. I didn't know what I would do with it. So, you know, talking to career services, they said, you know, all these banks come on campus, maybe you should talk to a banker. And so I randomly signed up for interviews because the way it worked, and you probably remember this, is that you would go to career services and you'd write your name on the form to get one of the interview slots. And so Chemical Bank, which I'd never heard of, was coming on campus. And um, I met with Vera Weintraub and she, I don't know, we just had a com- in an instant connection. She was wonderful and and brought me to New York for a round of interviews. And I I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe I was moving to New York City. And it was a blast. It was a blast. And when I was at Chemical, I ended up, I was in what they called at the time, the credit training program. And so I exited as what they called a credit analyst, but it was in the time that I would say commercial banks were beginning to have investment banking powers. And so Chemical Bank started, they created a trading floor and they created a high yield debt origination department, um, which meant junk bonds. So for people who aren't familiar with that, and and what a junk bond is, is essentially it's a high risk, a company that's considered high risk, high risk of not paying back um, a loan, essentially. And they raise money through bonds to to get people to invest in their companies. And so I got a very plum job. It was sort of the most highly sought opportunity to be in the inaugural group at then Chemical Bank, it became Chemical Securities because they got their securities license. And uh, I was in high yield origination. So my my primary focus for whatever reason is I, I worked on a lot of Swedish shipping company deals. So I spent a lot of time in Sweden <laughs> of all places. I don't know why, but that's what I did. <laughs> wow, that's nice. So uh, what you come back to Kansas City. Why'd you leave Chemical? Um, no, I, I left because I... Mark and I got engaged. He was living in Chicago and I wanted to go to business school. So I got into school in Chicago and moved. We moved in together and um, had a blast in Chicago. I mean, New York is definitely my city, but he knew Chicago because he had been living there. So it was really fun. I mean, interestingly, I, you know, I was living south of the city in Hyde Park and I didn't have my own transportation. So I didn't love living in Chicago. I think if I'd lived more in the city part of Chicago, I would have enjoyed that better. But we had a great time living in Chicago just together. We had so much fun. 
Um, but I, I missed New York, but I went to school and when I graduated, same deal. It was at a time when graduates had multiple opportunities. They had, could pick where they wanted to go. Um, so, you know, I had, I had opportunities to go to different kinds of corporations. You know, I had consulting offers from really prestigious companies. It was amazing. But the one opportunity that I just couldn't get out of my system is that Sprint, uh, that it now, you know, now it would be T-Mobile, the telephone giant that I knew to be from my hometown in Kansas City was recruiting on campus. So it was one of those things where at some recruitment day, I bounded over to the recruiter at, thinking he would care that I was from Kansas City. I said, I'm from Kansas City too. And so fell into conversation with this guy, Rudy Pappenfuss was his name. I had a, a great conversation with him and we developed a relationship over the the couple of years that I was at Chicago. And when I graduated, I was I was lucky to get the offer to come back to Sprint and uh, to move back to Kansas City. And honestly, when we were weighing our, our options, we could have been Kansas City, Michigan, uh, Chicago, uh, a couple of other places. And we looked at each other and said, let's go home. So we've been back in Kansas City for almost 25 years. What, what do you think about people getting their MBA now? What, what is your advice to young people that are considering yeah. getting their MBA? Well, probably all of your listeners are not going to love my answer, but I think the best part of getting your MBA is the relationships that you build with the people. So it's the alumni network is the most important part. I mean, sure, you know, I already said that academics are really important to me, being a good student, learning all you can. But to me, it was the relationships. I mean, in fact, I'm going to my 25-year reunion here in just a couple of months, and I cannot wait to catch up with people. And, you know, I've kept up with this mattering of people and it's been lovely, but um, to sort of have a, a big group of us back in Chicago will be so much fun. And w when I think about what having my degree from the University of Chicago has done for me, uh, I would not have my own company right now, or at least it wouldn't be this company without having had my Chicago experience. I, I mentioned to you that I, I received, um, a fellowship from women in entrepreneurship. What I didn't tell you is that the, the family behind that fellowship, ironically, is from Kansas City. And, you know, the story with that is that when I got my admission letter to the University of Chicago, I got a second letter and it said women in the in incoming class are eligible for a fellowship in entrepreneurship. And I cast the letter aside because I'd never been an entrepreneur, even though I always wanted to own my own business. And the night before it was due, I came back to my little tiny studio apartment with the Murphy bed and I came across the letter and it was due the next day. And these are the days before email. So I thought to myself, you know, you can't win if you don't play. So I, I wrote the essay and I faxed it in the next morning from Chemical Bank. <laughs> Two weeks later in the mail, I got a letter that said, congratulations, you've been awarded the Mike and Karen Herman Family Fellowship for Women in Entrepreneurship. And honestly, I thought a mistake had been made. So I called Chicago and I said, my gosh, thank you so much for awarding me this fellowship. Who are Mike and Karen Herman? And the woman said, well, Mike is the president of the Kansas City Royals. And I said, I'm sorry, are they from Kansas City? And she said, yes. And I said, I'm from Kansas City. And she said, oh, we thought you were from New York. And I said, I can be from New York. And she said, no, it doesn't <laughs> that matter. That disqualifies me. Yes, I'm, I'm, I'm from New York. <laughs> I can imagine like somebody saying, stop talking, Alana. Like, just stop talking. So um, I said, oh my gosh, can I have 
their contact information and I reached out to them. And so the next time I was in Kansas city, they had me over for tea and honestly, they have become my guardian angels and they, they host a reunion for all the women who have ever received their fellowships um, back at the university of Chicago every year. And honestly, I was the second person to get it. So our reunions used to be very tiny. Now there are many, many women who are, who are come back to the reunion. Honestly, in 2007, I was working at Sprint, but I always try to make it back for that reunion. And the way I go is I fly to Chicago in the morning, I go to the meeting, the reunion meeting, catch up with everybody, and I fly back that night. And so in 2007, I went to the reunion um, at the downtown Gleacher Center in, at, for the University of Chicago. And there were two speakers that year. One was a woman named Daphne Mazarakis, who I'd gone to business school with. And um, like me, Daphne finished her MBA, went to work for a big company. She went to work for Kraft Foods. She was the brand manager of Cottage Cheese, very sexy title. And she um, learned everything that there was to know about the dairy business. And so she quit her job because we all said we wanted to be entrepreneurs. She was the only one among us who was doing it. She, start, she left Kraft to start her own yogurt company. And I was blown away. I was blown away. And the second speaker was a woman from Kansas City who I'd never met before. Her name was Lisa Mitchell. And she, at the time, was the vice president of innovation for the Ewing Marion Kaufman Foundation. And her talk was about networks. And she said, if you leverage the relationships in your lives, not only can you expand economies, but you can improve human welfare. And I thought, oh my gosh, my mind is now blown. I'd been at Sprint, by the way, and I loved my job at Sprint. I'd been at Sprint for 10 years. Um, my, my title, if you thought Daphne's title was sexy, my title was, I was the director of entertainment. And so if, um, basically if, if the product had to do with movies, music, television, games, um, sports on a phone, that was my product line. So it was very cool. I loved it. I thought it was so much fun. Um, but listening to Lisa and Daphne talk, I flew back to, to, from Chicago to Kansas city that night. And I woke up my poor sleeping husband to announce that I was going to quit my job. Uh, because it was just time to go be an entrepreneur. And so the, the truth is, it, you know, it still took me a long time to actually become an entrepreneur, but it was a University of Chicago experience. So it, it led all the way back, you know, it led all the way back to that Chicago MBA experience, but it was about relationships. It was less about what I learned and much more about the interactions that I'd have with people from, you know, different backgrounds, different parts of that Chicago experience. So that was a very long-winded version of why get an MBA, but you get it for the relationship building, in my opinion. I was going to ask you if you were a good student, but you've already said it several times. And I, that, it's no <laughs> I was surprise. a serious nerd, Jeff. Oh my it's, gosh. It's no surprise to me. Um, we'll get back to, again, uh, starting your entrepreneurial career. In your sprint experience, what were some of the great leaders you worked for that you uh, learned from? I mean, the very first one I have to mention is Sandy Price. So um, for anybody who doesn't know Sandy, she was the senior most woman. She um, led HR and she, um, she hired me to the company because at the time she was the, um, she, she had this what she called an executive development program called the staff associate program. And it was amazing. What it did is it allowed candidates who were part of the program to um, rotate from job to job once a year. 
to experience different aspects of the business. And so I got to experience parts of a corporation that I didn't even know were available. And, and really that became kind of, kind of part of the culture of my sprint experience was to kind of move around from position to position. So frankly, in 10 years, I had like 10 different jobs. And, and so Sandy, I mean, was just, she was just remarkable, just a remarkable leader. So um, I feel very fortunate to have interacted with her. Uh, Janine Strandyard, who was uh, the, the top financial person, she, um, she was my mentor through that program and a, a, a friend today. And, you know, again, seeing, for me, seeing these incredible female leaders with so much confidence and poise was just um, really, it was really meaningful for me, really meaningful for me. Um, because, you know, I'd been an investment banker. So I, it, but the thing is I went to a women's college. So I, I had no, like, I was not, I, I didn't feel intimidated by boys or men. It was, that was not it, but to see women really excelling in all the different aspects of career and professional life was, was just, um, uh, reassuring and, and exciting to me. So I would, I would say those two for starters, another, a phenomenal leader was Len Lauer, um, who has since passed away. He was at, at one point, he was the COO of the company. And I'll never forget, they, there used to be, you might remember, there, there used to be a coveted position called the EA, which stood for executive advisor. And so they kind of select these high flyers to be, to, to follow around like a little lemming. Um, these executives and to basically do projects for them, go to every meeting. But it was it was this highly coveted opportunity because you basically got to be in the C-suite without the title um, as the right-hand person to your executive. And so I remember I was on maternity leave and I got a call and the HR person said, I know you're on maternity leave, but Len Lauer is uh, looking for a new EA and he'd like to meet with you. Are you willing to just, you know, leave maternity leave for a day and come in for an interview. And I said, if I can stuff myself into a suit, I will be there. So it was so fascinating. I went for the interview. It was like the most amazing interview of my life. And um, we, we are rocking and rolling, having this great conversation. And toward the end of the meeting, he's like, Alana, I, this has been a great conversation. I have loved talking with you. You clearly are passionate about what you do, you're good at it. You've made a huge, important impact for the company. Why have I never heard of you before? And honestly, it was the most deflating thing I've ever experienced. And I could just feel like my whole body just like fall. And um, it was, it was very, it was very hard to hear that. And, but he wasn't trying to be mean. He was, he was teaching me a lesson and he said, you know, um, he said, why is that? And I said, I don't know. I guess I just thought that if I worked hard and kept my head down, that I would get recognized. He's like, yeah, no, that, that's not going to work for you. He said, that's not what your peers are doing. He said, uh, you don't have to be boastful or um, arrogant, but um, you need to you need to show people what you're made of and what what you have capacity for. And he said, um, I'm, I'm not going to give you this position. He said, instead, I'd like to be your mentor. And I, and I want you to come back to me and I'm going to help you. He said, your next position, I'm going to make sure that you're a vice president. And 
it was so interesting because I didn't reach out to him for a long time, but I ran into him and he's like, Alana, I've been expecting your call. I told you to reach out to me to schedule regular meetings. We need to put you on the vice president path. And he really meant it. And that was, that was his focus. And he was just a great leader. I ended up leaving Sprint before I, I took a position as a vice president because I was not satisfied with the opportunities that were made available to me. But I always appreciated that because you know, you hear people say, you know, it's like one of those things where people say, call me. And you think, yeah, I'm never going to call you. But he really meant it. It was sort of like I, he he said, you know, I want to support you. I want to help your career. I want to help you advance. And he thought that I would be better off not as his EA or executive advisor, but really just helping me get exposure to different aspects of the business. So I really appreciated that. So I would say those are three great leaders. There were many, many others, many, many others. And you know, today, um, and you know this, one of my very close friends is Mike Goff, who has been a huge difference maker in my career, huge difference maker. And, you know, what's interesting about Mike is I remember sort of observing him from afar. And, and you know, it's funny, he has slide presentations that have both of our names on them that he, he has, he saved. And so I know we did some projects together, but I always felt like he was like, you know, untouchable, not part of my throng. Um, but, but, you know, he's somebody who similarly observed my, uh, my work and what I was capable of. And when I left Sprint has just been a, an incredible difference maker to me. And that's somebody that I got to know at Sprint. So, you know, when I think about the people who impacted me, there are so many, sprint connections and and people i admire and so i'm sure i'm leaving many many names out and i regret that but it, it's just um it's one of those things i feel very fortunate to have had you know i love what len did though um and i and i honestly if i you know look at my career retrospectively i would say i, I was very similar to you uh, and, and like i thought if i just work my ass off and did great things and made the company money, you know, that would yeah. get me promoted. And I, and you're lucky you had Len to, to be that mentor. So you're director of entertainment for Sprint. There had to be some crazy celebrity <laughs> business stories, you know, crazy yeah. dinners out and what happened afterwards. I mean. Yeah, there were. And probably the weirdest, craziest one, two of them. One is that some of your listeners will know the the singer CeeLo. I think he, he was on like one of those competitions. So I, I don't know. Yeah. I never watched it, but I know he was on one of those programs. Um, okay, so we were launching a new phone. It was specifically a music phone is what we were calling it. It was this little gold brick. It was not attractive, but it was it was mar being marketed as a music device specifically. And, you know, this is these are the days before the iPhone, if anybody can imagine such a thing that, you know, Sprint was actually the first U.S. carrier to have data services on a mobile device and which was a humongous feat. And, you know, I don't think that Sprint got enough credit for that because it was it was a really important thing. And and for me, what I really loved most about that entertainment opportunity is that, you know, those were the days of Napster. People were essentially stealing the product, okay, and not even realizing that they were doing it. I don't think there was a lot of malicious intent, but it was, hey, if I could get my favorite songs for free, um, why not? If I can download them to, you know, my my little music player, why wouldn't I do that? Because there were those MP3 players. I mean, it, it was a different day. Uh, you couldn't just dial up a song uh, on on demand. 
And, and so I think that what the mobile industry did for the music industry was to basically save that industry because it gave people a way to legally purchase and listen to their favorite songs in a way that was not unaffordable, but it also allowed the artists to make money. So I feel really proud to have been part of that, but we, we're getting ready to launch this music phone. And so we hosted a celebrity, I don't know what to call it even, a, a party, a launch party in Los Angeles at this crazy mansion and all these, what they, I think they used to call them tastemakers or influencers, what is what we would call them today. And um, we invited all these crazy people and, you know, there were Kardashians then. I didn't even know what a Kardashian was. I'd never heard that expression. So um, there were Kardashians there and I think Paris Hilton was there, but our performer was CeeLo. And so he gave a private concert and I just think it's so ridiculous, but I, you know, but I think it's funny. And, you know, I, I, I got to go to some really cool events like, um, every year before the launch of a new television season, all the, the networks host these sort of coming out parties where they will show, you know, what are the programs going to be for the next season? And those were the days of the, like the first season of Grey's Anatomy. And we created a relationship with ABC and Disney to show full length television programs and movies on our phones, which again, nobody had ever heard of such a thing. So I know it sounds ridiculous now, but that was, those were early days, very innovative. And we had this relationship. So I got to go to this launch opportunity with ABC uh, networks and, um, you know, so the, the whole cast of Grey's Anatomy was there and then they had a spinoff private practice. So it was it was really cool. And, and it was one of those things where you, you sort of feel like uh, an imposter, but it was it was fun to get to witness some of that stuff um, and to meet people that you otherwise wouldn't have gotten to meet. There, there's a guy who uh, he was actually the chairman of the board um, of NPR, um, National Public Radio. His name is Jarl Moan, and he was on the board of one of our, our business partners, Moby TV, which helped us to put television on a phone. And um, he hosted a party one time at his mansion. He had a, a room in his, in his house that was like a, a screening room, but the roof retracted so you could look at the stars. I mean, it's one of those things where you think only in the movies and until you're sitting there in, in Los Angeles and you see all this crazy stuff going on. So, you know, just funny things that happened that I think now are so ridiculous, but, you know, it was funny to experience them. That concludes part one of Jeff's conversation with Alana Mueller. Be sure to listen to part two, where Alana continues to discuss her journey into the world of networking, coaching, and how to help others here on The Corporate Couch.